Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark. And I will be joined by my colleagues, Bill Galston of The Wall Street Journal and Brookings, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter notes from the middle ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. But we're going to do something a little different this week. We were able to talk with Tim Mack, who is an independent journalist who writes the Substack newsletter, The Counteroffensive. And he is in Kiev, and we were able to speak with him today. And so we're going to present you with his interview before we get started with our regular panel. Tim Mack, thank you so much for joining us today. You were with NPR for many years, and uh, you are now coming to us from Ukraine. So before we get into it, I'd love if you could just tell our listeners how you came to be there, the kind of journalism you're attempting to do and are doing brilliantly from Ukraine. Tell us the story. So I landed in Ukraine for the very first time on the evening of February 23rd, 2022. And that's the night the invasion began. You know, I was, along with a team of folks from NPR, there in case something happened, and boy, did it ever. And and I spent much of the last year and a half rolling around the country trying to understand what was happening on the ground level. I mean, one of the things that NPR does really well is connect on a human level with people and, and tell their stories, try to tell the ground truth and the perspective of how these stories develop and, and actually speak to you through the audio format. And so this year, what I decided to do was I left NPR and I started my own company, a Substack called The Counteroffensive. And kind of following some of that same philosophy, but expanding on it a little bit. So we wanted to do the news, but not the news in an AP style or Reuters way, not this kind of straightforward, dry news production. We were worried about news fatigue, this idea that people are slowly over time forgetting about or discarding the story of what is happening in Ukraine. So we wanted to tell compelling human stories starting from the people who experience the news rather than the, the dry news itself. I think a lot of people were getting tired of just the booms and the bangs or stories about, oh, the front lines moved from this village you haven't heard of to another village you haven't heard of. We wanted to tell, you know, the people who experienced the drone attacks or the people who narrowly missed being killed by a Russian missile strike. When the Kokovka Dam collapse happened, we went down and we interviewed the fishermen who were watching on the banks of the Dnipro River as they saw their livelihood being destroyed as the banks of the river receded away. Mm. That's the kind of journalism we're trying to do. Not just, here's what happened today. Right. But here are the people who are experiencing the news. And let's teach you a little bit about their lives and who they are, where they're from, what they like, enjoy. And that was something that I really wanted to do because there are so many compelling stories here. And I find that people just connect to these stories more, that they could empathize more and they could relate more. And that really leads to what our core philosophy is, which is that autocracy and empathy can't mix, that you can't look at all of this injustice happening to fellow human beings and permit this to continue, at least from a moral perspective. And that, that's kind of what we wanted to do, was highlight the stories of people suffering from the effects of dictatorship and autocracy. I want to come back to the morality here, but first, one of the things that the counteroffensive captures so well is how surreal it is to be in a country at war where you can go out and get a cappuccino in Kiev, right? And in an hour or two, you know, be in the midst of the most harrowing human suffering. Give us a sense of like the juxtaposition of ordinary life and the horror of war. Yeah, it's a beautiful summer evening right now as we're talking. And mm -hmm. I'm looking out the window and the sun is setting on a beautiful city. And there's this grand architecture, as far as the eye can see, 
There are terraces open. People are having drinks and coffee on the street. But this evening, in all likelihood, everyone will go back to their homes by curfew and there will be a series of airstrikes or air alerts that will terrorize everyone and everyone will wake up in the morning, bleary-eyed, and just try to find a way to continue their lives again or enjoy what little they can. You know, last night, for example, there were half dozen or so air alarms throughout the middle of the night. It is constantly this low-level, occasionally high-level amount of stress and anxiety that is imposed and is terrorizing people on a near daily basis. And that's to say nothing of the terrible killings and torture and looting and war crimes that have been committed in this country and are continuing to happen. And the effects that occur to families when fathers and brothers and cousins, uncles, your wives, your aunts, your daughters are killed or otherwise terribly injured, either in combat or as a result of Russia's targeting of civilian infrastructure and civilian residences. All of that creates what I've now found is this incredible fatigue, which I've experienced just a small slice of, but which Ukrainians can describe quite well, which is this terrible exhaustion of how there's just so little emotion left to produce and to express. People are just so tired. And you're looking down the line, you're looking at a really hard winter ahead, another difficult time where it's probable that Russia will continue to attack energy infrastructure and make it a very difficult place and time to be. There will be fewer terraces open next year than, than this year, I'm sure. So people are understandably exhausted from the physical and psychological effects of their losses. By the way, I imagine that it can't be easy for you to sleep at night. I mean, just being there I mean, with all of those alerts going off and the sound of explosions. I mean, I can't imagine how anybody living there, including you as a journalist, can function because you don't get a good night's sleep and you go week after week that way. It must be really hard. It's amazing, actually. And, you know, I talked to so many Ukrainians about adaptation, right? Like, so many people before the full-scale invasion would never have imagined how they would react in these kinds of situations. But people find ways to adapt to even terrible, terrible circumstances as they kind of adopt it into their daily routines. You just go to, you try to go back to yeah. sleep. You try to get what you can. You try to take naps. But you just notice people are starting to snap. Okay, so Tim, do you think that that's affecting their willingness to continue fighting? I don't think so. I mean, I think that this is this is a fundamental fight for Ukraine's existence and its freedom to exist as a separate nation unbothered by Russian demands. Mm -hmm. And Ukrainians understand that. And there's no unwillingness to continue. Mm -hmm. That said, people are tired. People are exhausted. And how could they not be? Mm -hmm. I mean, people are suffering from the toll of the mental trauma. Just, just talking about mental trauma. The mental trauma of a year and a half of constant stress and anxiety. The thing about being even in a place that's not near the front lines, like Kiev, is that there's a constant low-level anxiety that doesn't really ever leave you. Mm-hmm that something dangerous can happen around you, even when there isn't an error. You have to be alert at all times because there is danger around. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I'm experiencing for the first time in my life. Um, a lot of Ukrainians are experiencing for the first time in their lives, and it's taking a real toll on them, I think. And you know, one of the big challenges, both now and in the future, is going to be how are people going to be provided with the mental health resources they need in order to figure this all out for themselves. So there is a kind of commentary that we see here, both on the right and the left, which is namely that this is America's war and that the Ukrainians are merely our agents. So for example, Robert Wright had a post on Substack. This is a quote. We are throwing Ukrainian men into a meat grinder week after week in hopes that maybe Putin's regime will collapse and maybe this will be good for Ukraine, question mark. And it's as if 
this is the U.S.'s decision to fight this war? Well, I think almost all the facts stand contrary to that line of thinking. And I'd encourage that writer and anyone else who holds that opinion to come and speak to any random Ukrainian and ask their opinion on it. And what, what they'll say to you, what the Ukrainian government will say to you, what the average Ukrainian will say to you is we've had to drag the U.S. along as far as it has, mm-hmm. you know? You know, the Biden administration has, from the perspective of the Ukrainians, been reluctant to provide help and has been behind, for example, Poland and the UK in many different ways. And the Ukrainian government has accused America of being an ally that's dragging its feet as Ukraine desperately needs more help. There are very, very few. In fact, I don't think I've met any Ukrainians who are saying, hey, we don't want to defend ourselves and this isn't a fight worth fighting. That's not really a view that stands up to any serious scrutiny. So we're getting a lot of reports about drone strikes and other attacks inside Russia that may or may not be the Ukrainians. But do you have a sense whether Ukrainians get a a morale boost when they hear about drones hitting Moscow, for example? They definitely do. I mean, I remember when the first serious drone strike hit Moscow, it was like a light switch. You know, the exhaustion that I described to you just a few minutes ago, everyone was smiling on the streets. Everyone's on social media. Like, I think it was just a country which has endured a year and a half worth of hiding and fear and terror was finally getting to see what they view as the enemy receiving a taste of their own medicine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, It is a morale boost to a lot of Ukrainians. And I think even some Ukrainians recognize themselves that they almost feel like it's a guilty pleasure, right? Like they shouldn't be so happy to see that violence. But on the other hand, almost everyone in Ukraine knows someone who's been killed or terribly wounded in this war. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's this huge well of anger and hatred. Lives have been destroyed. Businesses have been destroyed. People have been killed. Relatives have been separated from their loved ones. They've been separated from their loved ones. There's tremendous amounts of uncertainty because you don't know if your husband or your brother might be drafted soon. I mean, and that's not to mention the fear that comes every single night. And the Russians are doing their best to make this a war on civilians, right? By attacking energy infrastructure, food infrastructure, hospitals, right? They're doing their best to make war on the Ukrainian civilians. It's very, very hard to see the facts as anything other than that. There have been just so many attacks on residential buildings, hospitals, as you mentioned, food infrastructure, and energy infrastructure. It is hard to see any other reason other than what you described. So, From what I can gather, Ukraine is a fairly traditional society culturally, but um, I wonder if you can tell us just a little bit about the role of women and are women serving in the armed services or are they in support roles? How how is that working? Yes, they're serving in the armed forces. Um, Actually, on the counteroffensive, we did a profile of the Ukraine's Women's Guard and they're a group of really badass women who are going around teaching other women how to become partisans behind enemy lines. Mm. You know, I was was interviewing one of the heads of this organization who was telling me that they were teaching how to use simple office supplies to kill people (laughs) behind enemy, you know. Wow. But they're teaching, you know, unarmed combat skills, how to operate rifles, how to do emergency first aid, and how essentially to be partisans behind enemy lines and how thousands of women have signed up for this. And there are untold more women in the actual armed services. I see them at checkpoints and I see them in uniform in many of the places that I go. That's interesting. And do you have a sense of whether, I'm sure they are, but like, are Ukrainians following what's happening in American politics? Because, so for example, there's a recent CNN poll that said, you know, 55% of Americans said that the U.S. Congress should not authorize additional funding to support Ukraine. One thing I've had to tell a lot of my Ukrainian friends is to expect the 
American domestic political race to factor in much more heavily in into how much aid Ukraine should expect to receive in the future. And I think that there was a lot of optimism that the war might not last that long, at least through to the election, and that it, it would be a moot point. But now that we're looking at a war that could go on for, let's face it, years, you know, there's a lot more concern being raised locally about what that could mean. And, you know, I saw the CNN poll that you, you raised. It's the first poll I see that shows that more people oppose additional military aid to Ukraine than support it. And that is worrying to the Ukrainian government and public and, and, and should be. What would you say to people who have heard that, well, Ukraine is, is very corrupt and it's not really a democracy and it's not really worthy of us depleting all of our military supplies? And by the way, that's partially true. I mean, we really are running out ourselves and need to you know, restock some of our own supplies. But obviously, I think that's something we should do, but not diminish our support for Ukraine. But what do you say to people who criticize the country and find refuge in that argument? Yeah, I mean, history is filled with emerging democracies that need a little help. And there's no doubt that Ukraine has some flaws, which, by the way, it will need to fix in order to gain admittance to the EU or NATO. But we're aware of them. And I think Ukrainians understand that they need to be fixed. Some of the most ardent supporters for Ukrainian governmental transparency and accountability are folks who have given a ton in this war and wonder what it will mean if Ukraine doesn't emerge from this conflict, more democratic, more progressive, more transparent, less corrupt, that this war is being fought against two things, Russia itself and the way Ukraine used to be. Mm, you know, that's so that that's one thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say is that there is some misconception about American military aid to Ukraine. In essence, we're not giving them cash to purchase tanks and shells. We're giving old stock, older Bradleys, older tanks, and then we're purchasing modern versions of that for ourselves. So in a way, mm-hmm. the Ukraine aid program is, if you'll talk to Republicans and Democrats on the Hill who are familiar with this, we're modernizing our military and giving Ukraine our old stuff. That's not a terrible trade, in my opinion. Mm. And, and that's, how I, that's how I would look more closely at the Ukrainian military aid situation. So it is getting to be the end of summer. And uh, what are your plans for this upcoming winter? Are you concerned about being cold? Do they have enough heating fuel and so forth? Electricity, that kind of thing? How, what's it going to be like in the coming months? You know, I've been here during winter. It gets ferociously cold, but you get by and we'll be fine. I mean, the counteroffensive, it's been hard, right? Because we're not a, we're not a company that brings in billions of dollars or even millions of dollars, considerably less than both those figures. <laughs> um, so like starting this company has been starting a new publication, but also a startup in a war zone. We've had to do all sorts of things that are just extremely basic from get a car that can run, get medical supplies, get protective equipment. That means like, things like gas masks and batteries, Yesterday, we finally brought in a solar panel to charge our batteries. When the power goes out, we'll have a backup source. We've had to get satellite phones because we know the comms will go and internet that works independent of power supply and uh, the cell phone networks. So it's a tremendous amount of work and resources that go into it. And so I'd really encourage if folks find these compelling human interest stories interesting as a different way to digest the news of really important things that are coming out of the war to check out the counteroffensive and sign up as a subscriber, either free or paid, and follow our work. We'd really love to have them. Thank you so much, Tim Mack. I would second that and urge people to check out the counteroffensive on Substack. And I hope you stay safe over there and we will continue to follow your work with Wrapped attention. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for being with Thanks, us. Thanks, Lana.
All right. Tim Mack is a brave man and a really wonderful reporter. Um, any reactions to what you heard? Yeah, Linda. Uh, yeah, I was with a group of young conservatives this week. And one of the things that really disheartened me was to hear just in general conversation of the suspicion of United States aid to Ukraine. I heard the mm. term blank check thrown yeah. around. I also heard the accusation that this is not about protecting Ukraine or anything else. It's about regime change in Russia. And that just sort of makes me sad. Um, the only thing I would I would add to that very interesting and uh, worthwhile interview is just something I've been harping on, on and off when, when Ukraine comes up on the podcast for months now. I, I I wish we would hear more from the president of the United States making the case for why this is important. There just feels like such a vacuum where I just hear poll after poll coming out over the last multiple of months where support seems to be kind of slowly leaking away and not enough of a case being made in the public square. And I, I'm disheartened by that, and I wish it were different. I agree 100%. Now, I do understand that the Biden people may feel that it's better that he not be so forward about it because things are so polarized in our country that if he's very much identified with it, maybe it will harden Republican opposition, and most of the opposition is from Republicans. But at the same time, I think that represents a failure to exploit one of the great advantages of the presidency, which is the bully pulpit. Well, the problem is also that if he doesn't say anything and the Republicans are yeah. pushing on their side, then they're gaining ground and are, the other side is losing it. Yep. And so yeah, I don't think he has a choice, really, if he wants this to continue and be our policy. He needs to make a case for why it's important and why the other side is wrong to be saying that yeah. we need to uh. stop. I just want to add one point. Yeah. It is not Americans who are turning their back on Ukraine. It's Republicans. In your interview, you talked about the CNN poll. Mm -hmm. Well, I just posted a fairly lengthy piece on that poll and related matters. And 62% of Democrats think we should continue aid to Ukraine. You know what the figure is for Republicans? 28%. Yeah. 28%. The young people, Linda, that you were talking to, young conservatives, were not an atypical bunch. They are perfectly representative of mainstream conservative Republican opinion today. And as for the president risking alienating the Republicans if he identifies publicly and strongly and vocally with his policy, forget about it. They've already turned against him. They're not going to turn against you more. I mean, 28%, is that number going to go down a lot? I don't think so. Yeah, that's right. And he has to think about the people in the middle. And there are some. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there for now on that topic and turn to a related matter, which is that we are coming up on the first debate of the 2024 campaign season, namely the Republican debate on August the 23rd, in order to qualify for the debate stage, the Republican Party established ground rules that candidates poll at least 1% in three national polls, gather a minimum of 40,000 unique campaign donors with at least 200 coming from 20 or more states and sign the campaign pledge, which we'll get to in a second. We've now heard that there are eight candidates that have qualified, and they are, of course, Trump himself, independently wealthy North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who gave $20 Visa gift cards to anybody who would make a $1 donation to his campaign. So he made it to the debate stage. And then there's Governor Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, and Mike Pence just squeezed in under the wire. So that's where we are now. 
I'm going to start with you, Damon. One of the things that I'm hoping the moderators will ask the participants is, and it's a Fox debate, who won the 2020 election? Oh, I'm quite sure they will ask that. That's the low-hanging fruit for sure. Yeah. And you saw uh, Ron DeSantis this past week trial ballooning his approach to an answer to this. Yes. Which is sort of to admit, yes, Biden won, at least in the sense that, look, he's in the White House. Um, Yeah, that's not enough. I'm sorry. I guess that was kind of like the positivism (laughs) spin. Like, did he win in a metaphysical sense? Well, I'll leave that up to the theologians. But, you know, when it just comes to, like, the fact that Biden is living in the White House and exercising the powers of the office, clearly he won. No, but Damon, I'm going to stop you. I want to just underline this because for... Like two years now, you have had cowardly Republicans uh, when asked, did Biden win the election fair and square? They will say, oh, well, he is the president, which is their way of not answering the question. And so I dearly hope they're not going to let them get away with that stuff. Is he legitimately in the White House? That has to be the way it's asked. Well, I will be interested to see if they go that far, because the reason why the Republicans won't take the the metaphysical position that Biden is the true president and won legitimately is because a large majority of Republican voters don't believe that. So by saying it the way they do in that positivistic way, they're able to walk that tightrope and not antagonize that tiger they're riding, namely the Republican base. But the fact is that Fox News is equally riding that tiger, and they also don't want to come out as you know, why are you giving them a hard time and making them say this thing that isn't even true? Trump won. They're concerned about their ratings and not antagonizing the people who spend their primetime hours watching Fox News programming. So there's a very strong incentive within Fox News to not push it too far, at the same time that they will feel some journalistic necessity to put the question out there. So I suspect there's going to be a lot of that. And it's then going to come down to people like Chris Christie, But, you know, on some days, Mike Pence, but clearly Christie will be up there and try to push people over to the theological position (laughs) that, in fact, Biden really did win and is the legitimate president of the United States. So, Linda, what we have here, maybe for the first time in living memory, is a presidential debate in which both the candidates, or at least some of the candidates, the leading candidates, let us say, and we don't know if Trump is going to show up, we'll get to that in a minute, and the moderators all have an interest in lying to the viewers, (laughs) right? In perpetuating the big lie. I know. You know, you sort of wonder if the uh, Fox folks will get a little briefing beforehand and say, you know, we still have this one suit out there and it's actually for more than a billion dollars and maybe we better you know sort of play it carefully i just don't know what's going to happen i mean so damon was talking i was hearkening back to the days of the mclaughlin group because john mclaughlin always used to you know make predictions and it was with metaphysical certainty yes and you know it's just the idea that you have this large swath of voters in America who do not believe that the man who currently occupies the White House and has access to the nuclear codes is the legitimately elected president of the United States. And you have a whole infrastructure within the Republican Party, in Congress, among the Republican leadership, at least in the House, and in a major part of the media, which is the conservative media, basically reinforcing that lie. And it is a real threat. I just don't know how we've now will have had two elections probably in which there was so much 
disagreement with the election, the procedures that were used in the election, that major swaths of the American people will not believe that the election was a free and fair election. This in the oldest democracy in the world. How do we survive that? How many elections? It's so dangerous. It is so, so dangerous. So I don't know what Fox is going to do in that case. I do think that Chris Christie will be very hard hitting. And he will be up there on the debate stage. I think Mike Pence has interestingly done better in the primary Mm. since he's at least taken one of his gloves off. Well, since the third indictment, this is a new Mike Pence. Yeah, since the third indictment, he now, you know, is willing to stand up to Trump. And lo and behold, you know, there actually are voters who want that. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel sorry for Mike Pence because he really struggled to meet the standard of 1% plus 40,000 donors and that for a a vice president, a man who was vice president of the United States, who was governor of a state, who is a member of Congress, who's run so many successful campaigns in the past, to have this be a hurdle for him. Chris Christie was, you know, within days or weeks of announcing that he was going to do this. He seemed to be able to get those donors and started showing up in the polls. So, This is a very sad day for the Republican Party and an even sadder day for democracy. So, Bill, one of the other requirements that the RNC imposed on would-be participants in this debate is that they will, this is a quotation, I will honor the will of the primary voters and support the Republican presidential nominee in order to save our country and beat Joe Biden, unquote. So Vivek Ramaswamy, of course, the oiliest of these candidates, immediately agreed to this. Some of the others have said they would agree to it, but they're going to take it about as seriously as Trump did in 2016. Namely, that was uh, Chris Christie. But, you know, we now have had, this is really PTSD time. I mean, we've had the spectacle of the executives of Fox News trooping out to Bedminster to plead with Trump to attend the debate. And Trump is now toying with people and saying he has already made up his mind, but he has a big announcement coming next week as to whether he will participate or not participate, making himself the center of attention, which is what he does. But the other thing that they ask them to do is to commit to not running as a third party. So your thoughts on any of this? Well, the people who are experiencing some difficulty with this pledge include Donald Trump himself, right? I mean, if you look at the statements that he's made, he's been pretty explicit in saying that there are, quote, three or four of them that he wouldn't support. That's right. So is this a pledge that everybody will attest to with fingers crossed behind respective backs? Is it going to be a case of, well, I'll say it, Because not only do I not mean it, but we know that he doesn't mean it. But do you think that anybody can score points? And if so, who do you imagine doing so? I know you've been kind of soft on uh, Tim Scott, but my suspicion is that Tim Scott is running for Trump's VP. That is possible. But I think he also has in mind the scenario that I sketched out a few weeks ago where he becomes the Gary Hart of 2024, beats DeSantis for second place in Iowa, you know, comes into New Hampshire with a head of steam, and then right after New Hampshire, South Carolina. So if I can think of that, I'm sure he and his campaign folks can. So I'm, I'm not willing yet to concede that he's running for vice president. Do you think we'll know after the first debate? No, because at this point, I think he's made a decision which, from a narrow political standpoint, is not a stupid decision, that he's not going to distinguish himself from Trump by attacking Trump. He's going to distinguish himself from Trump by who he is and what his biography is and what his affect is. In other words, as the social scientists would say, he is not going to be against Trump on a single continuum. He's going to be orthogonal to Trump on his own continuum. Yeah. Okay. I'd love to spend just another couple minutes on this related subject of Biden's 
low approval rating. Um, I just want to take your temperature, all of you, about this. Let me put my cards on the table. I think there are two things that are dragging down Biden's approval rating, and there isn't much he can do about either one. Well, maybe a little bit about one of them. So I think two things are, even though the economy is in some ways incredibly strong, considering what we've been through in the last five years, but inflation is still high, and specifically food inflation. Every time you go to the supermarket, it is painful. And I have a sense that until people's grocery bills go down, they're not going to have a good view of the economy. That's one. Second, you know, the age thing is what is weighing him down, that people just don't feel like he is, is up for the job. He can do a little bit about that. But Damon, what's what's your sense? Well, I think that's largely correct, especially the inflation dimension. I'm fortunate enough that we're not in serious straits here in the Linker household because of the rising food prices. But of course, inflation is the rate of rising prices. We're not going to see them go down unless we have deflation. So what you have is that three or so years ago, I, I to let your listeners know something about my household, I would regularly uh, spend $160, $170 a week at the grocery store. I now regularly spend around $230, $240 at the grocery store. That's a big jump. It is. And if that isn't going to go down, which again, short of deflation, it isn't. That's the new baseline. Then the only thing that is going to make that affordable to people is their wages rising and catching Which is up. happening. It is, but not fast enough for it to be caught up. And of course, it isn't just food. It's gas remains pretty high and used cars are still high. They're down from what they were. The problem is that uh, in all kinds of macro ways, the economy is doing well, but economic data is usually uh, aggregate data. And at the aggregate level, you can say we're doing great all you want. But if at the micro level of my own private household budgeting, I'm still struggling to make ends meet when under Trump, I was doing much better. That's going to be a drag that is very hard to overcome. Then there's, you know, this is like the most boring thing in the world to bring up, but I have to because I swear every time I speak to a normie person, which for the purposes of this discussion, I will define as someone who doesn't spend all day looking at news and writing about it. Whenever I speak to someone like that and I ask them what their view is, every single time they say Biden is too old. Yeah. Every single time. There's a sense out there that we're sort of presidentless, like that we, we have a kind of vacancy at the top, even though I don't think it's true. And I think he is involved. He is running the show. And on top of that, I think his staff in the administration is top notch and they're doing very good work. I do think the perception has now gotten out there that this guy is too old for this job. And unless he somehow convinces people, all right, fine, he's, he is old, but he's still, he's still got it. I think that is also going to remain a drag as we go forward with the usual caveat that once things settle down on the right and we see who he's really running against, people will tend to sort of go back to their corners and there'll be a lot of Democrats who are grumbling now who will still show up to vote for him if it's him or Trump or him or really pretty much anyone on the other side. Uh, so, Bill, we have a year and then some before the November 24 election. So if inflation doesn't rise and if wages continue to rise, it's possible that even though it won't make up for what people lost in terms of purchasing power in the first two years of the administration, people could have the sense of the trend lines being in the right direction. So that's a possibility, right? Oh, absolutely. We went through 25 consecutive months in which prices rose faster than wages. And people are very sensitive to that. I mean, a lot of past political science has demonstrated that relatively small changes in real income can have large political effects. But political scientists have also found something else. And that is the impact of the nine months to a year 
before the actual election. The experiences during that period outweigh the previous three years of the presidency put together. Mm. So if the trend we've seen in the past two or three months were to continue for another 15 months, then I think Biden would be in a materially better position. One broader comment about this topic, I don't think it's been underscored frequently enough that if it's Trump versus Biden, we are going to be in a presidential election that is nearly without precedent in American history. Usually when you have an incumbent president versus a challenger who hasn't been president, it is more nearly a referendum on the incumbent than it is a choice between the incumbent and the challenger. For the first time now since the, I believe, 1892 election, we're going to have a president and a former president opposing each other as candidates of their respective major parties. So I think it's going to be reservations that people have against Joe Biden compared to reservations they have about Donald Trump. And it will be a real moment of truth for voters who aren't simply in the bag for one or the other. And they're going to have to reveal with their votes whether or not they think Biden's age is more or less significant than Donald Trump's behavior at the end of his presidential term. I don't know how that choice is going to come out, but that is going to be the choice. At the end of his presidential term and since, I would add. Well, since, of course, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but starting on January 6th. Yeah. Linda, do you agree with my argument about why Biden's uh, approval is, is so low? Absolutely. Look, I'm 76 years old. He's only a few years older than I am. But I am telling you, he is too old to be president. I think Donald Trump is too old to be president. And those people who say, oh, but he's so much sharper than Biden, not really. Uh, they haven't been paying attention to what he does on Truth Social, if they think that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Or just watch him. I mean, watch his speeches. I mean, I'm sorry. He's, he's not sharper than Biden. He certainly knows less uh, about almost anything than Biden does. But that's beside the point. I think both of them are too old. But if it is a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, I believe, despite inflation, you know, unless we suddenly go into, you know, a terrible recession and the war in Ukraine turns out to be a disaster and lots of other terrible things happen, I think that Joe Biden will, in fact, win. And one of the reasons, I think the primary reason, is that it would be a referendum on democracy. And people like me, who pulled the lever for Joe Biden last time, will do it again. On the other hand, if there is virtually anybody, any Republican besides Donald Trump, who is the nominee, I think it very well uh, could be that you would have a Republican elected. Why Republican voters and who seem to, you know, believe that there is some purpose in having this party that stands for certain things, why they would nominate the one person who is, I believe, sure to lose to Joe Biden, I don't understand because I think that virtually any of the candidates, maybe Vivek Ramaswamy wouldn't do it because I He's just not qualified. And you're right, very, very oily. But any of the others, I think, would uh, stand a very good chance of defeating Biden and perhaps handily so. I get very nervous when you have to ask tens of millions of voters to vote on the basis of saving democracy. Because, you know, a lot of them will think they're saving democracy by voting for Donald Trump. It makes me very uncomfortable, but that's where we are. That's the world we live in. All right. I want to touch now on something else that will potentially be a 2024 matter, and namely the uh, the results in Ohio. So Ohio has become an extremely reliable red state, but they held at the impetus of the Republican Party in Ohio. They had a, a referendum on the ballot this week that would have increased the majority from 50% to 60% that you need to pass a constitutional amendment in the state. 
And it was defeated very soundly by 57 to 43. And Damon, even Republican-leaning areas, even counties that went for Republicans reliably, in this case, now it's just a referendum, it's not a, an election involving candidates, but they were against this measure because they understood that it was actually a vote to limit abortion rights. Yeah, the way it works, uh, there's, I guess, going to be something on the ballot in November to try to enshrine basic abortion rights in the Ohio Constitution. And so this was an attempt, kind of a really sneaky and smarmy attempt to change the rules ahead of that vote to make it more difficult for it to pass. And them choosing 60% actually is very fitting because this vote came in, as you said, 57 to 43, showing that the more pro-choice side of the question doesn't have enough to hit 60. So it was like the Republicans saying, we want to make sure that you can't change the Constitution to defend abortion rights in November. So uh, here in August, when hopefully no one will be paying attention and people are on vacation, we'll kind of sneakily change the rules so it'll make it more difficult for you to win later. And frankly, I think obviously this shows once again, as we also saw in Kansas uh, a year or so ago. We've seen also in Wisconsin with an election that since Dobbs, these elections that are held that resonate with abortion rights are going in the pro-choice direction. And I do think it shows that the kind of center of gravity on this issue is in the moderately pro-choice direction. People want abortion freely available to women in the first trimester. That is by far the most popular position. Once you move beyond the first trimester, Things go south pretty quickly and support dries up. Similarly, when you go away from the pro-choice position toward the pro-life position of outlawing abortion, it goes down steeply until you're around 10% support for strong restrictions. And then when you go further out toward not even allowing exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother, they go down even further. And so this is a simple reflection of that. But it's also, I think, a reflection of the fact that Voters are learning the way Republicans operate. DeSantis got a lot of traction early on because people who really pay attention to politics on the right desperately want a bare-knuckled, almost vicious kind of politics where there's no compromise, there's just wrestle it to the ground and beat those bastards on the other side. The fact of the matter is most Americans are not that kind of draconian, right-leaning Republican voter. And voters at large, I think, are coming to learn the lesson that they can't really trust Republicans not to push things further than public opinion will support. So, Sure, Republicans will look at polls showing that there, you know, there's really not strong support to have a six-week ban and no exceptions. And if they can get away with passing that to make the pro-life activists happy, they will do it, even if it's unpopular. And I think a lot of American voters are like, you know what? We don't trust you with your power, at least on that issue. They may still sometimes vote for Republicans because they agree with the the Republican positions on other things. But when it comes to this, and I suspect some other social issues, there's, I think, declining trust among the voters at large about Republicans wielding political power. Bill, I'm going to present to you the uh, optimistic Democratic case here and see if you want to punch any holes in it. This is from a political consultant quoted, I think, in uh, Politico. Republicans have not had a good election night since before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. You have had elections in usually close states, like Damon was mentioning, like Wisconsin and Michigan, that have gone unexpectedly largely for the Democrats on this issue and related matters or where, where this issue was implicated 
So shouldn't the Democrats be dancing in the aisles and saying this is the thing that's going to ensure that they don't lose the Senate in 2024 and that they win the presidency? I wouldn't go that far. But I think that the political consultant you cited is directionally correct. Not only did the Ohio victory margin exceed expectations, I mean, 14 points in a bright red state, but in addition, it came with a very large turnout. Bottom line, this issue mobilizes people. They care. They'll make the effort. And at this point, I think the debate in the Democratic Party about the prominence of this issue in the 2024 presidential election is over, right? Proof of concept has occurred four times over at this point. And it's just a question of refining the presentation of the case and trying to figure out how generic it should be, how detailed, how pure, how moderate, etc. And that will take some doing. But at this point, the die is cast, and it will be a central issue for Democrats in 2024. Linda, some of the pro-life activists are blaming Republican politicians for failing to make the case properly or uh, failing to present the issue you know, when somebody is doing poorly in politics, they always blame comms. I mean, that's a, right. that's a sort of iron rule. You have to say it differently. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. You, know. you just had to say it differently. But look, the party does seem to be in a bind because it does have this implacable constituency, the pro-lifers, who have been very key to mobilizing voters on, on the right and for the Republicans, who have a pretty inflexible position. So they're stuck, aren't they? Or are they? You tell me. Well, uh, okay. I think you're right that the pro-life base of the Republican Party is very deeply wedded to its position of wanting to ban abortion in all. Maybe they can only get in most cases, but they want a complete ban on abortion. That, as Damon, I think we've talked about it before in the program, that's not the American public's view on the issue. What I'm curious about is why the Democrats aren't doing what Ohio is going to be doing, I guess, this initiative, why it's not being done in more states. We all remember in 2004 that it's usually attributed to Karl Rove that there were several anti-gay marriage initiatives on the ballot and that those initiatives drove a lot of people out to the polls who might not otherwise have gone to the polls. And it really did I think, boost some support in that election for George W. Bush. Now, the Democrats' problem is that they, like the pro-life wing of the Republican Party, have a position on abortion, which is also not acceptable to most people, and that is basically the right to abortion uh, for what Ever reason the person who seeks the abortion wants, really up to the very late term in the pregnancy, if not to the actual birth date, at least a very, very late term. And so that could prevent them from putting initiatives on the ballot that would be popular enough to not also motivate the people on the right. But abortion is clearly an issue now. You know, a lot of Republicans said, let's throw it back to the states. This is something that needs to be decided at the state level. Well, that's what's happened. And I think Republicans have made a mistake in going to the most extreme positions on the issue and therefore losing a lot of people for whom this is a more complicated and more nuanced issue. Yep. And one of the swing states, Arizona, there's a move there to put some kind of abortion referendum on the ballot for 2024. So it might have exactly the effect that Democrats hope for of boosting turnout. And by the way, uh, another thing that Republicans should be looking at with a wary eye is that the number of young people who are turning out on this issue is tremendous. And it's, as we know from many years of watching politics, the hardest group to get to go to the polls is young people. So, Yeah, that's right. And it's not just young women, by the way. Young men have a stake in this too. That's right. By the way, the most pro-choice 
People, our population, young men. our young men. That's yes, right. They don't, they, they don't want a shotgun wedding. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we will continue to watch this. It's very, very interesting outcome. And now we will turn to our final segment, the highlight or low light of the week. And we will start with Bill Galston. My highlight is from the frontiers of artificial intelligence. It has been reported that a supermarket in New Zealand decided to diversify its offerings by allowing artificial intelligence to come up with new meal plans for its customers. And some very innovative ideas emerged from this, including one that particularly struck my eye, uh, namely mosquito-repellent roast potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) You can't make this stuff up (laughs) unless you're artificial intelligence. (laughs) Uh, oh, that's artificial stupidity, I think, or something. Absolutely. <laughs> By the way, there is emerging evidence that if you let AI continue to scrape all this information from everywhere, it actually gets stupider, not smarter. It sort of peaks and then declines. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, don't we all? My low light is actually a good deal more serious, and that is that on the ubiquitous you know, West Virginia broadcasters Hoppy Kirchival's broadcast, Senator Joe Manchin announced, not to my surprise, that he is very seriously considering leaving the Democratic Party. And this is not just the equivalent of Kirsten Sinema leaving the Democratic Party, because during the past week, a survey was released in West Virginia showing that he trails current West Virginia Governor Jim Justice, the probable Republican Senate nominee, by 22 percentage points if Joe Manchin chooses to put himself forward for re-election. All of which suggests to me that within his own mind, the balance is shifting in favor of not running for re-election to the Senate but instead putting himself forward as the no-labels candidate, the top of the no-labels ticket uh, for an independent bipartisan run. Oh, wait a second, Bill. Couldn't you see it the other way? Look, he doesn't have to cease being a Democrat to be the no-labels candidate. Whereas if he were running for re-election as a Republican in the state of West Virginia, he might have a fighting chance against Jim Justice. Fighting chance against a 22-point margin when he's been well, a, Democrat, a, long way. a Democrat oh. for 76 years uh, <laughs> and has run for every office known to man or woman in West Virginia. I, mean, I don't break. know. I don't know. <laughs> All I don't right. Know. Well, we'll see, won't we? We'll see. We will. Okay. Excellent. Damon. Oh, boy. Bill's really, like, uh, giving me the chills now with the thought of uh, of Manchin running on the no-labels ticket. Like, that is the true nightmare scenario. Like, it is. Like, all right, Linda can say, of course, Biden will end up winning against Trump if it comes down to it. And I sort of believe that. But if there's Manchin in the mix, I'm not making any bets. And that's pretty scary. Anyway, speaking of Mr. Donald Trump, I have two recommendations of pieces that sort of push what I like to think of in a somewhat arrogant way as the linker position on the latest uh, federal indictments of the man. Not that I'm coming out and strongly saying this is a mistake, but I do think that we have to be fully aware with eyes wide open of the risks here. And there are two good pieces I read this week that make that case. One was an op-ed in the New York Times on August 8th by uh, our friend Jack Goldsmith titled The Prosecution of Trump may have terrible consequences. And that headline is so transparent, I'll leave it at that. But if you know Jack Goldsmith, you know anything he does is going to be very informed and thoughtful. And this piece is no different than that. Damon, can I just interrupt really quick? Because I did read that piece. And I just want to say, I highly recommend people read it because it gives a point of view and a perspective about how this looks to Republicans that people should 
should grapple with. Yes, exactly. I completely agree. It's uh, very nicely done. And of course, from someone who has not the slightest bit of sympathy for Trump and no softness in judging uh, his actions as president in sense. And then the second one is a more theoretical take on the same dilemma. This is by someone I've recommended here before, Demir Marusik, who I think now works at uh, the Washington Post, but he's also involved in a substack called Wisdom of Crowds, where he writes an occasional column and also does a podcast. This is titled Politicizing the Law, subtitled In Certain Circumstances, There is No Alternative. And he, again, makes a similar kind of cautionary uh, plea, uh, similar to Goldsmith's, but dealing at a more theoretical level about the distinction between law and politics, which again is something that I uh, yammer on about here on the podcast pretty frequently. So both of those pieces were very nicely done. Again, neither of them are making the kind of pro-Trump argument that, you know, the indictment is nonsense, it's garbage, it's all just Biden trying to throw his opponent in jail. It's much more thoughtful than that. So I highly recommend both to our listeners. Thank you for that. Linda? Well, you've thoroughly depressed me. I often leave these shows feeling more depressed than I started, but I'm going to depress you some more because I have a couple of uh, lowlights myself, and they are two opinion pieces that appeared in the New York Times this week. And they're not on the same subject, but they're on sort of ancillary subjects. One was by Pamela Paul called What We Lose to Shoplifting, and the other was by one of my favorites, uh, Brett Stevens, about the hard drug decriminalization disaster that's occurred in Oregon. He also refers to it in Portugal. And I think, you know, we were talking earlier about people's state of mind and why is it they aren't realizing the economy is really doing pretty well, et cetera. Part of it is that their lived experience day to day is not as good as it used to be. And going as Pamela Paul makes the point, when you go to the drugstore, and I experienced this recently in New York, there's virtually nothing you can take off the shelves that isn't under lock and key. Everything is locked up because there is such widespread shoplifting. It's about $100 billion a year is estimated. And that's a lot of money. And of course, that makes everything more expensive. But it's more than that. You know, I've got to run in, I'm on a trip, I got to get a toothbrush and toothpaste and I go in and the toothpaste is under lock and key. Just virtually everything. And I think that is one of the things people react to. And again, as Brett Stevens makes the case, the whole question of homelessness which I will continue to call it, even though I think we're supposed to call it something like unhousedness or something, being unhoused instead of being homeless. You know, a lot of it is driven by drugs. And in places like Oregon, where it's not just marijuana that we're talking about, or even old-fashioned hard drugs like cocaine, you know, it's methamphetamines, it's fentanyl, it's things that are really dangerous and are not just ruining the lives of the people who take them, they're ruining the lives of a lot of people around and the way in which they now have to experience this when they go out into some of our major cities. Okay, thanks. We don't have that in our neighborhood of uh, everything being under lock and key. So that is um, news to me and it is distressing and disturbing. It's here even in Silver Spring, by the way. It's not just wow. in New York City. We have it in yeah, Silver Spring that's, too. That's interesting. Not everything, but a lot of things. Right. Yeah, I gotcha. All right, team. I have a highlight. <laughs> it's it's not going to start out that way um, because my husband and I spent yesterday afternoon at Urgent Care. I was up here in my office and I heard a shout from the kitchen. And sure enough, my husband had dropped a new very sharp knife, one of the set that he got me for Mother's Day because I like to cook. And this was my present. And unfortunately, this was a big knife and it sliced through one of his fingers. He didn't cut off his finger, I hasten to add, but he did slice it and he was bleeding. So, you know, we wrapped it up and he said, it's all right, I'll just apply direct pressure. And I said, I don't think so. (laughs) We need to go to urgent care. So off we went. And first of all, they were very well run. Once they got this insurance situation squared away and the registration thing squared away, which did take a little bit of time. But once we got through that, they saw us pretty quickly 
And we were treated, first of all, by all the nurses and staff, very nicely, very kindly. And he did need quite a number of stitches in his finger. So we were in there for a long time with this lovely nurse practitioner who was beautiful and intelligent and gracious and charming. And we got to know her whole life story. We talked about her life. So it turns out, like many people who are wonderful additions to our country, her parents are both immigrants from Eritrea. Her father drove a taxi, uh, now retired. Her mom is a psychiatric nurse. She herself obviously has become a nurse practitioner, meaning she can do more than a registered nurse. She can prescribe drugs. She can treat all kinds of things. And she is one of four daughters. She has a twin. They have prospered. They are all in one realm or another of the medical field. And it was just such an endorsement of immigration and of openness to others and of, you know, her incredible contribution as the child of immigrants and her values were really strong. And I just loved her. I just felt like we are stronger because she is here. And I just feel grateful for all of those people. I feel grateful for everybody who contributes to our society, but especially for people who come from other places and, uh, and make their contributions. So that was the highlight of the week. And my husband's doing fine. He's not in any pain. He's got a splint and he's going to be just fine. So that's my highlight of the week. With that, I want to thank our guest, Tim Mack. Again, he is the author of the Substack Counteroffensive. And I want to thank our regulars, as well as our producer, Katie Cooper, our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri, and of course, our wonderful listeners. Thank you one and all. Please tell all your friends. Please comment, write to us, do whatever you do on social media to get the word out. And we will return next week as every week.